Chapter 127 of Varney the Vampire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume 2, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 127 A Change of Scene and Circumstances, An Event in London. The recent events which followed each other so rapidly were strangely concluded by the sudden and mysterious disappearance of Sir Francis Varney. That he should thus have eluded all was aggravating to a very large class of people, who seemed to insist that he should have come to some notable catastrophe. Had he only been killed, they argued, we should have known the last of him. Of the truth of this there could be no doubt. When a man is dead and buried, you do, as far as human nature serves, know the end of him. But this great fact does not always come within the knowledge of men, who sometimes, contrary to expectation, drop off themselves, and instead of knowing the end of somebody else, why, somebody else knows the end of them. It is a well-known fact, that as some die before others, that it does sometimes happen that those who wish to see another out may be seen out themselves. Besides, taking the question of longevity aside, it does not follow, because we so wish to come to the conclusion of an affair, that its author may but change the scene and transport it elsewhere, and the good and curious lieges become defrauded of their self-satisfying knowledge, viz. the end of the affair. Of course it was an aggravation to know that there was an interesting and highly exciting affair gone off, and they were not allowed to peep into that mystery, the future but so it was, they were not gratified. Some were of the opinion that he had departed this life in a mysterious and unsatisfactory, because secret manner, and that was why nobody could tell anything about it. But there were other opinions afloat, and among others that of the admiral, which was pretty general, which was that he had very likely disappeared from that part of the world to seek in some other place the renovation his system required, by means that were natural to him, but hideous in others to contemplate or think of. This was generally the received opinion, for it was universally admitted by the wise people thereabouts that he must at certain times recruit himself. The opinion thus entertained by all who lived thereabouts became less and less absorbing. Other matters began to be thought of, things began to flow into their usual channel, and a subsidence took place in the turmoil and excitement consequent upon the presence of the vampire. About this period, while these parts were regaining their original serenity and calmness, and while the vampire was looked upon as an awful and fearful episode in the life of those who lived there, there happened in London a circumstance that it is necessary to relate to the reader, inasmuch as it is very important and bears strongly on our story. Not far from Bloomsbury Square, which, at the period of our story, was a very fashionable place, and in one of the first streets thereabout, was the house of a widow, whose name was Meredith. She had been the wife of a man in good circumstances, but at his death she was left with a house filled with furniture, some little loose cash, and several daughters, marriageable and unmarriageable, this being all Mr. Meredith had to leave. There could be but one way of obtaining a living, at least but one that suggested itself to her, which was to turn lodging-house keeper of the better sort. Her children had been well educated, that is, sufficiently so, to pass off in life, in decent society, without any particular remark. As she was well calculated for the object she had in view, it was no wonder that she succeeded in her undertaking, and appeared to do very well. 
About this time an arrival occurred at an hotel not very far from this spot, which caused a communication to pass to Mrs. Meredith, who had been recommended lodgers from the hotel, when any of the inmates desired to be accommodated and wished for a place with all the comforts of a home and domestic attention. "'Mrs. Meredith,' said the head waiter of the hotel, "'I wish to have a word in private with you.' "'With greatest pleasure, Mr. Jones,' said Mrs. Meredith, who was extremely civil to the waiter. "'Will you be pleased to sit down?' "'I have not the time. I thank you, I have not time. But I have run over to you to inform you we have an old invalid colonel at our place, who seems as if he did not know what he wanted. He wants some kind of lodging, he don't like the hotel, whether there is some genteel family whose kind attentions would soothe his disorders, and, I suppose, his temper.' "'Oh, poor gentleman,' said Mrs. Meredith. "'How unfortunate he should suffer. Is he rich?' "'Yes, I believe so, very rich. He's a colonel in the India service. He's been a fine man, but he has had some hard knocks. I have seen more rickety matters than he before to-day, and he will do very well. I told him I knew where there was a lady who occasionally admitted an inmate to her house, which was a large one, but she must be satisfied that her lodger is a gentleman.' "'Has she any family?' he inquired. "'Because I hate to go where there's nobody but the lady of the house, "'because she can't always attend upon me, read to me, and the like of that.' "'Goodness me, what an odd man!' "'Yes, but he pays well, a retired colonel, large fortune. "'You know that these East Indians expect I don't know what. "'They are even fed by beautiful young black virgins. "'The wretch! "'Oh, dear, no, it's the custom of the country. "'So you see, he's been humoured, and it will be necessary yet to humor him, if you mean to have him for your lodger. I expect he'll only be troublesome, but when they pay for trouble, why, it's all profit. Very true, replied Mrs. Meredith. Is he a single man? Yes, oh yes. I believe he has never been married, has had so much to do in India, that he had nothing to do with marriages. Where does he come from? India. I believe he had a very fine palace of his own, at Puttitherapur, so I am told. Lord, he seems to think nothing of these parts, but he's an odd man. However, he pays well. He'll make a good lodger anywhere. Well, you may tell him, Mr. Jones, that we have a fine suite of rooms for his accommodation on the first floor, and bedrooms, every attention he can wish. You know our terms, Mr. Jones, I think, but I may as well tell you, five guineas a week. Five guineas a week, eh? Yes, that is moderate when you come to consider what a trouble and an expense it will be to get such things as will please the palate of an Indian. It is a trouble, certainly. And besides that, he will have such a place and furniture as he seldom meets with in London. Besides, from what you say, there will be little trouble in attending to him by myself and daughters, and you know I have several. Exactly, exactly. That is the thing he seems to desire. You will therefore have a preference over any one else who may have anything he wants, a kind of domestic hearth. He has none of his own, you see. Has he no friends? None living, I dare say. Besides, he would hardly like to trust himself along with relations, who would poison him for the sake of his money. And, if he have any living, he may know nothing of them, where they are or anything else, and they would be as strangers to him, for he would not be able to recognize them. But I must go now. Five guineas, that includes all? Yes, all except wines and liquors, you know. Very well, I'll let him know, and perhaps you'll be in the way, in case he should come around this evening to examine the place. 
Do you think there is any chance of his coming in to-night? Really, I cannot tell. He may or may not, just as he pleases. He is an odd fish. But, good Mrs. Meredith, I will talk to him. The waiter left, and Mrs. Meredith sat in her parlor, which was her own private apartment, which she and her daughters usually retired to and received their own friends. Here they remained, in some degree kept in continual expectation. Nothing was said for some time by either mother or daughter, for there was but one at home at that time. "'Do you know, Margaret,' she said, "'we are likely to have a new lodger?' "'Indeed, Ma?' "'Yes, my dear. He is a fidgety old man, a colonel from India. He is vastly rich, I am given to understand, and will require all the attentions of a relative. He will pay very handsomely. In fact, my dear, he will keep us all with a little care and management.' "'Well, Ma, the men ought to do so, the creatures. What are they for if they don't? I am sure if ever I come to marry, which I am sure I shan't, and if I found that he didn't find me in all I wanted, wouldn't I lead him a life? I rather think I would,' said the amiable child. "'I'd never let him know peace night nor day. It would be useless for him to tell me misfortune had deprived him of means. That would do for me. Oh, dear, no, a married man has no right to meet misfortunes.' Indeed, he deserves to be punished for having a wife at all under such circumstances. A very proper spirit, my dear, but you must never let such a thing as that pass your lips, because it would be very likely to cause you to lose a chance. The men are so fastidious nowadays, and they think they win us when we angle for and catch them. And this lodger, ma? Oh, he's, as I told you, a rich old East Indian. At this moment a coach drove up to the door, and a tremendous double rap was played off upon the door, as if it had been committed by a steam-engine, so loud and so long was the application for the admittance, that both mother and daughter started. "'Dear me, that must be him,' said the mother. "'Yes, a coach and all. There, there, I declare.' "'What, Ma?' "'Why, look at that girl next door out in the balcony. There's Miss Smith. That girl is always trying to attract some person or other, and the men affect to believe that she is beautiful.' For my part, I think a girl of seventeen ought to have more modesty. The hussy, said the young lady, contemptuously. The servant now entered to inform her that a gentleman had called about the apartments. Ask him upstairs, said Mrs. Meredith, and she prepared to follow the colonel so soon as she heard he was ascending the stairs, which was a slow job to him as he walked lame with a gold-headed cane. When Mrs. Meredith came to the room, she saw a tall gentleman, his height was lost on account of him stooping. He wore a green shade over one eye, and had one arm in a sling, besides which, as we have before related, he was rather lame. "'Not so bad as I thought for,' muttered Mrs. Meredith to herself, as she curtsied to his salute. "'I have been recommended to seek here a lodging, ma'am. I do not know if I am correct in believing you have such as I want. This, sir, is the sitting-room. It is a very handsome one, and above what is visually offered in a lodging-house. The fact is, sir, the house was never furnished for letting, but for our own private occupation. Therefore it has all of the comforts of a private residence. That is what I chiefly want. You see, I do not care to undertake the trouble of setting up an establishment myself. I am alone, I may say. Therefore it is I seek such a lodging as comes nearest to what I should myself choose if I were to make a home of my own. Precisely, sir, there is the back drawing-room, and a bedroom upstairs. Oh, very good. I need, I presume, make no inquiry as to what kind of table you keep. The best, I dare say. I was informed of the price you asked. Yes, we consider that quite moderate, sir. 
I dare say, said the Indian, looking about the place with an air of curiosity. I dare say. Yes, sir, you see the advantages we offer are much above the usual run. Besides, you are an invalid and will require extra attention. Yes, there is much truth in that. I have used to it, and therefore you will see that I bargain for it. But at the same time, you will not find me difficult to please, I flatter myself. But we shall know more of each other the longer we are together. Certainly, sir, I can assure you that should you take the apartments, nothing on my part or my daughter's will be wanting to make your stay agreeable. The stranger examined the appearance of the room and the others, and then, after much conversation with them, he agreed to take the lodgings and to come into them on the morrow, as he was extremely particular as to well-aired beds, and should require them all to be re-aired. And now, madame, before I finally agree to come in, will you show me the means of escape, if any, in case of fire? I am anxious about that. I have read so many calamities arising from that cause of late in London, that I am somewhat nervous about it, though I am so much of an invalid that I should hardly be able to avail myself of it. You shall see, sir, said Mrs. Meredith, we have ample and safe accommodation in that respect. You see, here is a pair of broad steps that lead up to that door, a trap-door, and here is another that opens upon the leads at the top of the house. The colonel made shift to walk up and to look over the house-tops. There was a sea of chimneys and pantiles, at the same time they were all easy of access on this side of the street. So there was no danger from fire, and each house there was similarly provided. Well, madame, I think I may say that this affair is concluded. I will leave you my card, and, if you think proper, you can obtain what information you desire of me at the hotel. I am quite satisfied, sir, said the landlady, as she took the card that was proffered her, and also a bank-note which he offered her, in token for his taking possession of the lodgings. Mrs. Meredith curtsied, and the colonel left the apartment, and descended the staircase with great deliberation, for he could not go very swiftly. He was lame, and one arm was up in a sling, and therefore he had not the free use of his limbs. As he came down the stairs, and when near the mat, Margaret, the eldest daughter, came out and passed into the back parlour, for no other ostensible purpose than that of seeing the stranger, whose eye was instantly, but only momentarily, fixed upon her. But it was enough. They both saw each other, and had a glance at the features, and Margaret disappeared. The stranger stepped into the coach, and, as the door was being shut, he looked up to the windows of the next house, where the young lady, nothing daunted, still sat at the window, and so little was she interested with her neighbor's affairs, that she barely bestowed a momentary glance upon the coach or its occupant, whose solitary optic took notice of her, and then the Jehu drove away with his rumbling vehicle. "'Well, I never saw such impudence in my life,' said Mrs. Meredith, as she came to the parlour windows, which happened to bow outwards and give her a better opportunity of watching her neighbours to the right and left of her. "'What is the matter, Ma?' inquired her daughter. "'Why, there's that minx still up yonder. I declare if she didn't stare at the colonel. He saw her and noticed her, too. Well, I wouldn't have had her there to-day for a trifle. You will think he's got into a bad neighbourhood, seeing her so bold.' Really, now, she lays herself open to all kinds of imputations. I do not mean to say any evil of her, but really, if she will do that now, what will she not do by and by? I am sorry she has no one to advise her better. I am sure she is old enough to know better, rejoined the daughter. I am quite sure she's no beauty, and if she wants to catch any of the men, she won't be successful in that manner, unless indeed she doesn't care whom she picks up with. 
Oh, that is, I fear, too often the case with young girls with weak intellects. But did you see our new lodger, my dear? Yes, ma'am. And what did you think of him? inquired Mrs. Meredith, with an amiable whine and a gentle rubbing of hands. Think, ma, think. What can I think of a man whom I have hardly seen, ma? He only passed me. I could not recollect him again if I tried. Ah, well, my dear, you know best. I can always recollect people whom I have once seen. He is a very fine man. At least he has been. He has lost much of his height, for he is lame and stoops much. But still he has been a handsome man. One eye only, ma, I think. Yes, dear, one eye, as you say. But I think a remarkably keen one, too. He's quite the gentleman, too. He's been used to command, you can see that. These military men have an air about them that you cannot mistake. And even this gentleman, though you see, wounded and lame, yet he has the air of an officer about him. He may have, ma, but you know, if he gave the air of a general with nothing else, he would buy a very poor dinner. So it would, my dear. You certainly are an extraordinary girl, Margaret, a very extraordinary girl, and will be the making of your family. Only suppose you should marry this rich colonel. What then, eh? I only say, suppose you were to marry him, because it isn't certain yet. Well, wouldn't that minx next door think you were lucky? She would bite her nails in anger. Yes, she would, ma, but it may never happen. But if she thinks to get a bow that way, she's much mistaken. I am sure she will get insulted. No wonder. But, Margaret, my dear, you must do your best to please this gentleman. He wants to have people about him just as if he had his own home. He has no friends or relatives. Who knows what may happen yet? No, ma, we don't know what may happen. And I will do my best to please him. But I shan't court him, you know, ma. He must do that. Yes, certainly, my child, he must. No, you mustn't appear anxious about it. But merely say you are pleased to have his good opinion, and you must be a little coy of everything else, for there are times when such old gentlemen are easily entrapped. But I must set about having things aired and put into order for his arrival to-morrow. End of chapter 127